0: Hello, this is Aurora, the producer of Lime Ninja Radio, and before we get started, I wanted to let you know that you're going to notice changes in the podcast. You see, we have shifted over to recording episodes on Facebook Live, so what you will be listening to is a live recording that we have uploaded for you to enjoy.
1: Calling all ninjas.
2: Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio.
1: Hello, hello. It must be Tuesday because we're in central New York. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's an old movie. Cloudy. And it's cloudy, right? It's clouding up. Hello, welcome. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio Live. We've got a very, very interesting show for us tonight. And we're going to be talking to Bob Kriva, who's just written a book. I shouldn't say just written, it just published. His book just came out about Lyme and his experience with Lyme. And I always love to talk with authors. They always have a lot to say. And I have to do also say that I'm a little bit jealous of them because they actually sat down and wrote the book, unlike most of us who are just thinking about writing a book. There's that difference between thinking and action, and therein lies the secret to the universe, I think. <laughs> no, we're glad you're here. Please let us know who you are in the comments. Say hello so we can say hello to you. Aurora, did you get our top 10 lists together? I
0: do. I did. Excellent.
1: So as you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem. And each week we have people join us from all over the world, either tuning into Facebook Live or YouTube or on our podcast. And we have a list of actual lists. So Aurora, give us the top 10 cities that have tuned in this week.
0: All right. Starting at number 10, we have Johnson City, Tennessee. Number nine, Denver, Colorado. Number eight, Chicago, Illinois. Number seven, Henneker, New Hampshire. Number six, Utica, New York.
1: Yay, Utica. Represent, represent
0: the hometown. <laughs> <laughs> number five, Ashburn, Virginia. Number four, Oak Park, Illinois. Number three, Nottingham in the UK. Number two, Paris, France. And number one, reigning champion for the month, Santiago, Chile.
1: Wow. So, Paris has gotten bumped by Santiago, huh?
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, I have.
1: Come on, Paris, fight back. Hi, Christine. We're glad you're here. And Julie, hello from Cleveland. We're glad you're here. And if you haven't told us who you are yet, please take a moment, say hello in the comments, so we can say hello to you. We'd love to have conversations. All right. So, Aurora, tell us about this week's guest. Bob Kriva.
0: All right. Bob Kriva is a chronic Lyme disease patient who shares the story of his experience in his new book, It's Lyme Time, How a Tick Bite Nearly Ruined My Life. After noting a lack of firsthand accounts of Lyme disease written by non-celebrities, Bob decided to share his story of the frustrations involved in seeking a diagnosis, being taken seriously by the medical community, and seeking a cure. Bob is a certified medical coder, as well as a registered radiologic technologist who currently resides in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: Excellent, and before we bring up Bob, let's say hello to Jen. Hi Jen, thanks for joining us. All right, Tarora, thank you very much. We're going to say goodbye for now and bring up Bob. So see you in a little bit. Bye. Bob, hello, welcome.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks for carving out some time, and thanks for writing your book. So, why don't you tell us about the title? How'd you come up with the title to it?
2: Um, well, Lime time. It's the it's the title of my blog, um, and it just rhymes. That's really <laughs> the only reason why I picked that. Um, the subtitle: um, "How Lyme Disease Nearly Ruined My Life," because it, it basically nearly did. Um, I got sick about four years ago with Lyme, and it's been a struggle since then to try to figure out, first of all, what's going on, uh, getting a diagnosis of Lyme disease, and then finding a doctor that would believe me that I have Lyme disease, and then once I got a positive test, um, just figuring out a way to treat it, and there are many, many ways to treat it, I've found. Yeah. So that's that's the title of the book. <laughs>
1: You know, we're here in central New York, and they're, we're still struggling. Uh, my father-in-law uh, had a tick bite a couple days ago. So he, of course, uh, being the resident Lime ninja, he, he shows me, he said, can I show you my tick bite? So this 80-year-old man, he drops his pants. <laughs> nice. Luckily, it was just it was lowered down on his thigh closer to his knee, but he couldn't get his pants leg up. So he drops his pants and shows me. And the bite doesn't quite have uh, a bullseye rash, but he said the evening before one was starting to form. So here's a tick bite, right? There's no tick left. Actually, it turns out the head was left in there and uh, he had to dig it out. uh, And we're sending that off and see if there's enough of the, the bug left to uh, see if there's anything in there. I don't know if it's enough for them to do the, the Just RNA, uh, RNA <laughs> testing yeah, but well yeah. anyway, well I, was, I sent it off today. but I said, great, go to your his doctor is a pretty open-minded uh, family doc who's been in the community forever. He's well respected. He wasn't in the office unfortunately, and mm-hmm. his staff basically said, no, no antibiotics for you. you know it doesn't um, matter that you got bit doesn't matter that you have a rash. Just you know keep an eye on it and let us know if things change.
2: Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, you that's the common story yeah, that I've heard. Yeah,
1: you gotta be kidding me. Mm-hmm. You gotta be kidding me. All right, let's say hello to Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining us. How long did it take for you to get diagnosed?
2: It took about a year, year and a half since uh, my symptoms got really bad. I was diagnosed with just about everything under the sun before getting my Lyme diagnosis.
1: Name a few, I was curious.
2: So the first thing they said, I had cat allergies. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I do.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I've owned a cat, like my wife and I, we have a cat or we had a cat and it wasn't an issue before. And suddenly you have cat allergy. I had really bad sinus infections all the time. So like, well, it must just be your allergies. (laughs) So they made us get rid of our cat. Um, we had to give her up for for adoption and scrub down the, every wall in our apartment to get all of that out. Of course, that didn't do anything. So then I had to have surgery on my sinuses.
1: Oh, did you have the sinus surgery? Oh, yeah. My condolences.
2: Thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. This one.
2: Very unpleasant. Yeah. Taking that out. But yeah, so that didn't take. And then they thought... Um, I thought I had anxiety, which is another common thing that
1: people well, are told you do, but it's because you're sick. Exactly. It's not yeah. the other way around. You're it's sick. Not cause the you're cause. It's, it's the effect. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: Right. Right. Um, so then they thought maybe I had like Sjogren's disease. They thought, um, something maybe with my heart, like POTS or something like that. Um, yeah, they just, I, I saw so many doctors, they sent me to different specialists, they told me I had migraines, which I don't have, um, yeah, and I think some of them just thought it was psychosomatic.
1: <laughs> and so how did you finally get diagnosed?
2: Um, so eventually, uh, we moved back to Wisconsin, after about a year of not being able to find a diagnosis, I found a Lyme doctor up in the Wisconsin Dells, it's about an hour north of Madison here, who is a Lyme literate doctor. And he ordered me a test. Through. And so it came back. My Lyme test actually came back indeterminate, even though it was positive on three of the bands. Yep. And I was also positive for Babesia microdi, which seems to be the big one. that's That's been the hardest to get rid of for me. So that, that's how I finally got a diagnosis.
1: Yeah, Babesia is brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think... A lot of the lasting things with, with Lyme Lyme is enough of a problem of its own. But the Babesia, people with the co-infection Babesia really struggle with finally clearing that infection. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So you sought out a Lyme literate doctor. What made you suspicious that you had Lyme disease?
2: Um, it took a while to kind of put all the pieces together. When I was living out in Washington, they don't have a lot of Lyme disease out there, or at least they say they don't have a lot of Lyme out there. So it wasn't really on any of the doctor's radars. I never got tested for it. Nobody ever questioned like, Hey, maybe this is Lyme. But I didn't actually think maybe this is really Lyme until I had my gallbladder removed, oddly enough. The surgeon that removed my gallbladder, I was kind of just telling her all my symptoms that I was dealing with and she just kind of off the cuff mentioned, Hey, that sounds like Lyme disease. And no one else had ever mentioned that all the specialists, all the other doctors I've seen. And I, it just kind of, it was like a light bulb going off in my head, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I did some research. I looked up the symptoms of Lyme, and I had pretty much all of them.
1: All of the above, right, Check. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So I was like, well, maybe I should get tested for this. This seems legitimate.
1: And so is, was part of that research figuring out that I'm not going to get the help I need from kind of the neighborhood doc, I really need to search somebody out, or did you yeah. try locally before you traveled a couple hours? I tried
2: locally. There there actually aren't any Lyme literate physicians that I know of in Madison here, which is odd since this is such a a high concentration state for Lyme disease. But I yeah, I saw like general practitioners and I think they had good intentions, but they weren't able to pinpoint exactly what was going on.
1: Yeah.
2: When I was getting really bad headaches every day, they basically just threw painkillers at me. Like, I don't know, just take these, maybe you'll feel better. Yeah. Ultimately
1: that wasn't a good idea. Did oh, I lost my train of thought in there. So you're talking about that, you're talking about that, and then painkillers. We talk about traveling to Madison. I totally forgot the question. Oh well, so <laughs> better come up with another one <laughs> instead. So you're now traveling to see. Oh, I do know what I wanted to ask. So it's about Seattle. We before we got started, we were started to talk a little bit about mold. Mm-hmm. Now. Do you, did you remember getting bit at all?
2: There's one time in my life where I know for sure that I was bitten.
1: How uh, old were you?
2: I was about twelve years old, yeah, it was up in northern Wisconsin and it yeah it latched onto my lower leg. I don't know how long it was there. I don't think it was there very long, but long enough yeah, long it was enough right yeah but i've I've been exposed to ticks many many times, just living in the Midwest and uh, I used to go camping a lot. I used to go hiking all the time. So I've, I've been covered in ticks, <laughs> Ew, which is unpleasant, but as far as I know, only that one bite, but there's no way to know for sure. I never had the bullseye rash or anything like that.
1: It's so interesting to me because it's, I think a lot of us are carrying around the bacteria mm-hmm. Oh, you know, and maybe Babesia too. I, who, you know, who knows? But then there seems to be a triggering event. And I've heard stories about, well, you talk about moving into a, a home that had mold. I've heard mm-hmm. people getting uh, vaccinations to go abroad, uh, going through a divorce. I mean, just all these stressful events. And all of a sudden, the immune system takes a bit of a hit and everything changes, you know, mm-hmm. overnight. So Sometimes it's clearly, yeah, I got bit recently. Other times, it seems like the bite can be spaced decades away. And it's, that makes I think that makes the diagnosis even harder because part of the differential diagnosis that they're taught is you know do you have you had a re- recent tick bite, and if the answer is no, then immediately dismiss all those infectious diseases, and it seems to be a huge mistake.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it uh, for me it was a gradual onset of symptoms, so it's not like the flu where you just you get sick and you know immediately. It, it came on over a longer period of time. And I think a lot of doctors saw that and yeah, just they didn't consider Lyme at
1: all. Yeah. I had the opposite experience. I got bit and within 24 hours, yeah, probably about 24 hours, 36 hours, I felt so terrible. <laughs> it was the worst uh, flu symptoms I had ever had. It just really felt like I got run over by a truck. And then about a day after that, day and a half after that, uh, the the rash appeared on my arm. So, you know, it was unambiguous Mm -hmm. that that's what happened. Uh, But so many people are like you. It's right. Their immune systems are good or, you know, whatever. The infection isn't that bad to begin with. uh, And nothing much happens. uh, And then things begin to creep up. Things begin to fall apart. Right Mm -hmm. now. We have a question, so let's bring this up because I have kind of the same question. You talk, One of the things you talk about in your book is the different ways to treat things. And Christine asks, um, what do you do for the Babesia, or what are you doing for the Babesia? Uh,
2: I've tried several things. Um, initially, I tried mepron with, I believe, azithromycin. So mepron, it's an antimalarial. It's a pharmaceutical drug. Um, very nasty. <laughs> it tastes and looks like yellow paint. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was probably, that was I think the hardest thing on my body that I've taken so far. It really knocks you out. And I, I suppose that means that it was also potentially killing the babesia, or at least that's what it felt like. Um, and I, I felt good for a few months after finishing my course of that, but eventually it started to creep back in, the symptoms came back. I've tried an herbal method Uh, various different herbs, I think. uh, Cytacuda is one of them. Okay. Um, And currently I'm on disulfiram, which they don't know for certain if that treats Babesia, but there seems to be some, at least anecdotal evidence that it's helped people.
1: And how are you feeling with disulfiram?
2: It's pretty similar to the, until I felt on the mepron, it kind of knocks you out. It hits you pretty hard. I'm on a very low dose. Most people they say you're supposed to start at like 125 or 250 milligrams. And I've been around 30 and even that has been pretty, pretty intense. So yeah.
1: (laughs) What, what else have you found that you feel is, was helpful in kind in, in getting back together, at least getting back together enough to be able to write a book, which is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I think, in terms of treatments, I think uh, I found detox baths to be very helpful, and like Epsom salts, okay. that kind of thing.
1: Did you put anything else in there besides the Epsom salts?
2: Um, I haven't, other than like some essential oils, mm-hmm. like drops of like peppermint or something like that has been nice, or tea tree. Um, it kind of opens up the sinuses too, which is an added bonus if you're like me and you have allergies.
1: <laughs> but. And- how about other detox like foot baths or saunas or
2: i tried the sauna on that on the cover of my book that's me sitting in a personal detox sauna it looks really silly it looks like a tent and your head sticks out the top but um i had to discontinue that because i uh it was causing me to get really really dizzy uh, i would sweat and i i have problems with uh i think my blood pressure so if you get dehydrated at all and you have low blood blood pressure that's not a good combination, but I, I know that it has helped a lot of other people detox. So I think if you can tolerate it, I think it's a good thing to be doing, but it, it wasn't super good for me. Uh, so
1: is your blood pressure, do you have POTS, that sort of thing?
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, Actually, so I, I drink a lot of salt water to kind of compensate for that.
1: Yeah, to, try and, to try and keep your blood pressure up, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is the whole thing with the COVID thing. It's the whole angiotensin pathway with the POTS as well and the nitric oxide. So it's this stuff. It's all fascinating to me. I'm trying to kind of pull it together and understand. For, for some people like me, and again, I'm a subset, right? I was talking to somebody else today. It's like most people are like you with Lyme as they tend to thin out, you know, kind of the autophagy part of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, thin out. So a lot of people actually can lose quite a bit of weight and uh, lose quite a bit of muscle mass, um, I, I, I'm not going to blame it all on Lyme disease because I don't have it that bad, but mm-hmm. tending the other way, including hypertension. Oh, uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like it's damaged the the same pathway with me, but my response has been the opposite, where the blood pressure has gone up rather okay. than because I know a lot of people do have POTS. And when your immune system's kind of chronically engaged, you do... I'm going to say overproduce uh, nitric oxide. Uh, it's part mm-hmm. of the immune system, the innate immune system. So if that part of the immune system's always cranked up, then you're going to get uh, just vasodilation from that point of view. And you know, it may not be on that level, right? That's kind of the molecular level. It could be you know adrenal level, just not enough adrenaline. Uh, mm-hmm it could be other vagus nerve dysfunction where you're just not getting the proper signals sent to the brain. It's not being coordinated. So, I mean, who knows?
2: Yeah. That's the thing about Lyme is it presents differently in everybody. And I I think that's why it's hard to get a diagnosis because it's just, there's so many different symptoms that you can have.
1: So Julie says salt stick vitassium helps with her Mm -hmm. POTS. So, I understand the salt. I assume the stick is like one of those pixie sticks where you drop it in water. And Mm -hmm. potassium sounds like they're pushing potassium people, potassium, which I think is a good eye, too.
2: Good good electrolytes. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I have to check that out. Now, I'm curious, just from my personal point of view, what was the... How did you write your book? Like, did you get up every morning and write for an hour? Did you go into a cabin in the woods? (laughs) I wish. That sounds nice. (laughs) What was your writing process?
2: Um, Well, I wrote most of it. I was on medical leave from work for a while. So that gave me a lot of extra time. So I would mostly write either first thing in the morning or late at night, usually whenever there's quiet time. And it, it all came together pretty quickly. It only took about two months from start to finish to write it. Um, that's kind of how I operate. I, I do everything in verse. <laughs> so, yeah, it came together pretty quickly. And just actually just doing the editing and getting everything published, I think, has taken longer than actually writing the book, funnily enough.
1: Did you edit yourself or did you have somebody edit it for you?
2: I had two people edit it for me, my father-in-law and my sister-in-law. Excellent. Where, Yeah, my sister-in-law, she, she works – actually, they both work as copywriters, or they have worked as copywriters at some point. So very helpful to have family members that have been in the business.
1: Yeah, it makes a big difference that mm-hmm. they can really pull it together and make it coherent. Yeah. And afterwards, you're reading it, and you say, well, why didn't I think of that? But exactly, yeah. The writing process is much different than the editing process. Mm-hmm. And then the, my other question for this is, what was the motivation – What, like, did you just wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna write a book or was it bubbling in the background for a while that says, wow, this story really needs to get out there? What happened?
2: Yeah, um, it has been bubbling for a while. I've, I've been writing my blog for, I think about two years now. But to me, that seemed a little disjointed. I wanted to have kind of everything I wanted to say in one place. And the purpose of writing the book was just to provide a voice for somebody with Lyme Kind of like you mentioned earlier, like a lot of the Lyme books that I've read, they're written by celebrities and not that there's anything wrong with that, but not everybody has the resources that celebrities have. They don't have the money. They can't see the best doctors. And so I just wanted to provide a perspective of somebody that is just a normal guy that has Lyme disease, that's trying to figure out what's going on with his body and how to find a cure, or if not a cure, at least remission
1: yeah that's awesome i agree 100 percent. you know that's part of what i advocate for is one of the first things you do with lyme disease is you know define your budget it's like how much money do you have yeah and then rather than you know feeling upset or frustrated or i mean and those are valid emotions too but there's no use pining for uh you know a, a six month stay in some german clinic If you're getting food stamps, it's like you should be checking out essential oils, basically, and what you can do at home type of thing. And there's a lot. There's a ton of information out there. At this point, things are so much different than they were even when you were first sick. The information that's out there is amazing. Uh, There's so many different uh, ways to address Lyme disease on any budget now, and they're all effective. You know, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. But there's lots of different ways to get in there and begin to to move the needle in the right direction. And um, I want to now open this up to our people who's hanging in there with us. And if you have a question for Bob, go ahead and type it in the comment section, and we'll get them answered to the best of our ability. And we'll just wait a second. Sure. <laughs> Christine says, it's too bad that money determines line protocol. It's so mm-hmm. wrong. So, I agree. Yeah. So <laughs> and it's the real. It will always be the reality. I mean, it's funny because I've interviewed people from England. I've interviewed people from Australia, from other countries that have socialized medicine, and they're just as frustrated and they're just as hamstrung as we are here. Yeah. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not simply that a, a matter of funding. Right. Although it it, it is a big problem. There's no I'm not saying it's not a problem, but Mm -hmm. having universal health care, then you have to convince the powers that be that Lyme is a problem. And that's just as big a problem over there as it is here.
2: That's Um, the biggest obstacle is yeah, just to be acknowledged by the establishment that this is a real thing.
1: Yeah. And and unfortunately, this is um, what I want to say. The. Kind of the arc of history of science is not so much one of innovation. Innovation happens, but the old guard has to die off literally mm-hmm. before a new idea can really spring to the fore. It's very rarely that an idea kind of leaps forward and grabs our consciousness and and turns thing around. usually the the idea is hatched by a young person uh, who doesn't have the credentials, who doesn't have the the uh, the backing and the social network that the older, Researchers have and says, "Hey, I've got this great idea." And they, you know, basically pat them on the head or try to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the old guard dies off, and we see this over and over again with medicine uh, and physics and all types of scientific fields. It's yeah. it's unfortunate, but it's kind of what we have to wait for here. Um. <laughs> so another comment from Christine: We need to make lime sexy. <laughs> Bob's working on that as hard as he can. If you know
2: how to do that, let me know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. who's the who's and you think about it, we have had lots of sexy people with Lyme disease, right? It's it's mm-hmm. been in the news a lot. And because of that, there's a ton of awareness between people like you and me, right? I in, in some ways the general public's more aware than of Lyme than the doctors professionally are. Now the doctors in their private life might be. But it hasn't trickled over into the professional. So I like to say that Lyme disease is diagnosed over the backyard fence. Just like in your instance, it was a casual comment. Oh, that sounds like Lyme disease. You know, like boom. Thank you very much. You know, I
2: think there there are a lot of doctors that are sympathetic to Lyme disease patients, but I think they're afraid of ordering too many antibiotics or being put on a list or something like that, that they just don't want to deal with it.
1: Clearly. They the science the science based medicine. Uh, and most of the doctors now are working for hospitals and they're not, they're literally not allowed to stray off the path that's written out for them. Mm-hmm. So they can do it every once in a while, but they have to go to bat for the patient, do a ton of paperwork and suffer the consequences. If they start doing it regularly, they're good chance of losing a job or their license. And most of them are paying back, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars worth of loan. So it's a, it's a big deal. I have tons of sympathy for them. You know, it's just that's the way the insurance. system works. It's just, it's brutal.
2: That's why it's hard to find them too, because they're kind they of. Have, rare.
1: Right. And and it's insurance. Unfortunately, it is insurance that's driving this uh, the problem of what they will and won't reimburse for. And they'll, they will turn people onto the medical board. It's happened in our community. So Kathy asks, uh, and we know you mentioned the Babesia there. Did you find any other co-infections or viruses?
2: Um, no, I did not. Uh, I was tested for, Bartonella, Ehrlichia, uh, I'm not sure what else. That might've been it, but yeah, as far as I know, no know other co-infections, but they don't always show up positive.
1: And tell us about your mold story, the mold exposure. out in Yeah.
2: Washington, Seattle. So, uh, yeah. So I moved out to Seattle um, from a, from Minnesota where we were living at the time and we moved into this apartment. It was, nice apartment but it was in an old house and it had a mold problem which i wasn't really aware of at the time but i i came to find out that i'm pretty sensitive to mold and i think that may be what ultimately it's kind of a kettle boiling over scenario where i may have had these pathogens in my body already and then after the mold exposure that kind of put everything over the top in terms of my symptoms um yeah, so that, that was, <laughs> by the time that we figured out that maybe mold is an issue, uh, it was kind of already too late in terms of symptoms, and we were already planning on moving to Wisconsin. So we got out before it could get much worse, but it had already gotten pretty bad at that point.
1: Have you done a urine tests for mycotoxins?
2: I have not, but I would like to. So I'm <laughs> thinking about doing that next,
1: yeah. I can't recommend that enough. Uh, One of the things we find is with the mold exposure that you can uh, leave the moldy environment and even not have any mold, you know, systemically. Right. So you're taken out of the mold environment. You don't have any growing in you, Mm -hmm. but still the mycotoxins are present and not being detoxed properly. So you're you're suffering from the mold exposure and the mold toxins, even though there's no more in your environment. Uh, And the great way to do that is. Uh, with the, with the, Great Plains, I believe it is mycotoxin test.
2: And mold is tenacious. It's it's kind of like the Lyme disease, the yeah. spirochetes. Like it forms biofilms. It can form them in your sinuses. It can hang out in your digestive tract. Like it's very hard to get rid of once it's established. So
1: Absolutely yes. Very tricky. Yes, the mold itself, right? Mm-hmm. right. It's, yes. So, and I want to distinguish. There's the mold, and then the toxins from the mold, and they. Both can be present after an exposure. Mm -hmm. So just because you, so if you have mold systemically, you probably also have mycotoxins, but you can have mycotoxins without having any systemic mold or exposure to it. It's like they're, they're sticky too. It's like they're (laughs) tough to detox. Yeah. Some people
2: get pretty extreme with it.
1: I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. Go ahead. No, no. no. Finish your sentence.
2: Uh, Yeah. Like I've talked to people who have thrown out, all of their clothing and all of their belongings because of the mold exposure, they just don't want any of that in their home anymore. So it can get pretty extreme in terms of getting rid of the mold spores because they're, they're very hard to get rid of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, and it's one of those issues where uh, there's mold around us always. It's how sensitive we are and, right, and how uh, virulent the mold, uh, uh, the type of mold is. Uh, so you know and and then the level of exposure too so mm-hmm. anyway it yeah it's it's tough and I, you know we've talked I've talked to practitioners who've had people remediate their house spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars uh, sometimes it helps sometimes it doesn't so it's really we're just like with Lyme disease we're kind of at the beginning of the learning curve of of these molds and what's going on. Uh, Christine also asks, Would you say you're in remission now? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting question.
2: I wish I could, uh, but right now I I don't think so. I wouldn't say so. I'm still treating, I'm still treating with disulfiram right now. And I still feel like there are things that I need to address, particularly digestive issues and sinus issues. I think those are my biggest problems right now. It, It has gotten better. I think overall, like my energy has gotten better And I'm able to do a few more things than I used to, but there's still work to be done for sure.
1: May I ask, what are your current symptoms?
2: Um, Mostly right now, my worst symptoms are digestion related. I get very bloated after eating pretty much anything. There doesn't seem to be any pattern to it. Um, And I sleep very poorly. I wake up multiple times every night mostly related to digestive issues. I, I have a lot of back pain, joint pain. So that's still an issue. So, yeah, still some stuff going on there, but still yeah. getting better.
1: There's a lot going on there, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And let's see. So Kathy's asking, what are supplements used for molds? So, Kathy, basically, it depends whether a person has, uh, like, like Bob was saying, a, a mold infection going on. And in that case, they're antifungal, both drugs and herbal therapies that you can use. Primarily, though, the detoxification from uh, the mycotoxins. So it's different types of binders. And there's, I mean, there's tons of protocols out there. There's lots of information uh, on the web. And there are people who specialize in in getting rid of mold mycotoxins i will say it's kind of like oxalates if you're familiar with them at all the the mycotoxins are seem to be held within fat cells and so if you detox quickly it's one of the deals where the body says oh thank goodness we're finally getting rid of this and releases everything at once so you can get yourself sicker by by doing a, a binder it's kind of like it pulls too quickly from your cells so you want to go slowly Uh, especially in the beginning to figure out what your tolerance is with with any sort of detox. It's it's almost like smokers, too. It's like somebody stops smoking and you think, oh, you're finally going to be healthy, but they almost invariably get sick. And it's the same sort of thing as their body you know, as you take in the poisons, the body's slowly putting them away and it's working little by little to detox what we have, but you get clean, right? You clean out the pipe, so to speak, the drain pipes. And all of a sudden the body says, let's go pull this all out. And so all of a sudden there's a ton of toxins in your circulation. And oftentimes it overwhelms uh, what your, what your detox pathways can handle. So that's, Oh, that's all I'll say about that. Um, it's a great question. Um, are you taking any binders yourself?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm doing uh, some detox things for that. I take uh, bentonite clay, charcoal, and aloe. It's all in one pill. can't remember specifically the name of the supplement, but I think you could find it if you did some digging for it. And that that's actually been very helpful, especially with the digestive issues.
1: And do you take that every day? Do you pulse it?
2: I take it pretty much every day, just one pill a day, pretty low dose of it. Yeah, that is. Just true. enough to keep things moving because it it can kind of, it has a tendency to plug you up if you take it too often or too much. Okay.
1: And let's see one last question here from Christine again. Did did you ever have cognitive issues?
2: Yeah. um, I've had issues with word finding almost, almost like Alzheimer's weirdly enough. Um,
1: (laughs) It comes and goes. Yeah. It's one of the symptoms I have actually.
2: Yeah, it isn't constant, but certain days it's definitely an issue. Fatigue has been an issue for sure. I think uh, it's been hard for me to do my job and I don't have a very active job. I I do medical coding. I sit at a desk all day, but even that can be tiring as anybody who sits at a desk all day can attest to, like it's its own different kind of tiring. But yeah, so that's been a struggle. I had to go down to part time for a while just because I, I couldn't make it through eight hour days sitting in front of my screen, but got back to full time after a little while. So it got a little bit better.
1: It's funny how we take for granted our ability to focus. And mm-hmm. the line definitely can wreck that. Um, just you just can't keep your concentration going that long. Just can't do it. It's like, you know, carrying a hundred pound weight well, let's do something more, more reasonable, like a 30 pound weight. At some point your arms just give out. You just can't do it anymore.
2: Yeah, my, my attention span is just gone. Some days it's like, I just, it's hard to focus on anything and get comfortable. And yeah, I think that's that's a new thing with the line. So that's been fun.
1: All right, so why don't you give us the name of your book again and where people can find it. And if you have a printed copy, show it to us.
2: Sure. Um, <laughs> It's called "It's Lime Time: How a Tick Bite Nearly Ruined My Life." You can find it on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook form. I don't actually have a paperback copy on me right now because they lost it in the mail. So <laughs> 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 still waiting on that, but yeah, I'll, oh, no. I'll put it up on my Twitter or something once it once it comes in.
1: Yeah, definitely have to do a selfie with the book. I'm yeah. an author. I'm an author. That's awesome. Bob, thanks. You've been just a delight to speak with. Congratulations on completing your book. Uh, It's a big deal. It's even a bigger deal because you did it through the lens of Lyme uh, and fought through that. So just thanks for putting something together, something that's accessible for everybody and relatable. Uh, It's fun to read about celebrities, but like you said, (laughs) not necessarily the most helpful model for us to follow. So thanks for, for being out there. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. I'm going to go ahead and put you down. If you want to hang out with us for a little bit longer, we can chat after the show. If you have to go, that's fine too. And Aurora and I are going to finish out the show and we'll talk to you soon, Bob. All right. Thank you. Hey, Aurora.
0: Hey, you know, listening to him, um, I'm impressed again about the importance of finding a way to detox. For him, it was with with the Epsom salt bats and even figuring out, oh, I have mold. I need to get rid of that. Um, but how important that is to just get started on your healing journey just to get started with that.
1: Detox is always, you know, the Cowden protocol starts there and, you know, we've interviewed Greg Lee and it was his contention many, many years ago that that was the most important part of okay. healing is that you had to get the drains open and talking to other physicians. They speak the same way. It's like if If you're going to be doing some killing of bugs, if you're going to be doing something that stresses your immune system and you need to get rid of waste, you have to make sure that your body can process it and get rid of it first. Because otherwise you're just going to make yourself sicker than necessary. I mean, a a little bit of a Herx is understandable, but uh, there's no need to suffer. And the toxins are toxins. You know, they're doing damage. So Herxing strongly for a long period of time yeah, it might not be the best idea. So, yeah, the, all the different uh, strategies out there for detoxification. And like Bob said, you have to figure out what works for you. Sauna yeah. you know, is an awesome detox tool. But if you can't handle it, you can't handle it. you got to find something that you can. So some binders, foot baths, uh, something gentle like uh, Epsom salt, soak, things like that. There are lots of different ways. Earthing, right, uh, the the idea that uh, you're connected or grounded to the earth either through uh, a cable or just walking barefoot on the ground that's uh quote unquote detoxifying too we'll just leave it at that we won't get into the physics of that <laughs>
0: christy yeah <laughs> let's not do that
1: christy wait a minute here we go i hate herx yeah i hate herx too yeah yeah and those people said two years dose. It just start detox suffering yeah sorry to hear that kathy lyme disease is absolutely a brutal teacher uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, so start gentle. Everything. The other thing to Lyme disease is, man, you it's so easy to go fast. Uh, back in the beginning, I was making custom liposomal essential oil formulas. Uh, the recommended dose, daily dose, is three tablespoons. So I said, OK, we're going to start very conservatively and give somebody an eighth of a tablespoon, which is hardly anything, right? compared to three tablespoons, you know, just a fraction, an eighth, twenty-fourth of the recommended dose. It was too much for quite a few patients. So now I start people dipping the end of a spoon in, right? So they're getting, who knows, a 50th of a teaspoon or something yeah. to begin with. You can't start slowly enough with Lyme disease. Just give your body chance. It's all that all the gears need to mesh and work together, whether the detox gears and the immune system gears. And if you start pushing one too fast, you just grind your gears and you make yourself just feel absolutely miserable. All right, Aurora. You know what time this is, and all you longtime listeners, thanks for tuning in and joining us. And we could not leave you unless we had the Lime Ninja fact of the day.
0: Did you know a ninja won a season of The Voice using only sign
1: language? All right, thanks. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week at 8 p.m.
0: Bye.